Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about the science is settled, says Kamala to Amy. Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Never, How Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. I love the title even. Democrats Truth and Reconciliation Commission Coming to America and DOJ sues Google. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. During the hearings, we many of us have been watching. We have the nominee to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barry, Barrett, excuse me, and she was being questioned by Senator Kamala Harris, who's obviously also uh, on the ticket, the VP on the Democrat side. And there was a little bit of an exchange between them. I wanted to ask Matt, the wonderful producer, to play and make a couple comments on. So here is what Senator Kamala Harris had to say to Amy Coney Barrett. Do you accept that COVID-19 is infectious? Um, I, I think, yes, I do accept that COVID-19 is infectious, that that's something of which I feel like, you know, we could say you take judicial notice of. It's an obvious fact, yes. Do you accept that smoking causes cancer? I'm not sure exactly where you're going with this, but, you know, the, the notice that it's smoking causes... The question, question is what it is. You can answer it if you believe um, yes or no. <laughs> Senator Harris, yes, every package of cigarettes warns that smoking causes cancer. And do you believe that climate change is happening and it's threatening um, the air we breathe and the water we drink? Um, Senator, again, I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, you have asked me a series of questions like that are completely uncontroversial, like whether COVID-19 is infectious, whether smoking causes cancer, and then trying to analogize that to eliciting an opinion on me that is a very contentious matter, opinion from me that is on a very contentious matter of public debate, and I will not do that. I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial because that's inconsistent with the judicial role, as I have explained. Thank you, thank you, Judge Barrett, and, and you've made your point clear that you believe it's a debatable point. And the reason I want to play that little clip, that exchange between Senator Kamala Harris, she who will be vice president, and the next Supreme Court justice, who will probably be confirmed on Friday, Amy Coney Barrett, is because part of the argument in the American political conversation on, over and over and over is the notion that climate science is settled. Meaning there are no disputes, there are no unknown facts, there is nothing about climate science, say leftists, that is unsettled. And so therefore, everyone who even indulges in questioning climate science and it was the same thing on COVID-19, I'll mention just a moment, but anyone who questions climate science and not just the science they claim is settled, but then the agenda items, the policy items that flow from that conclusion, you're not allowed to dispute, you're not allowed to question, you simply must salute and agree with the left that because climate science is settled, any and everything they want to do in response to this settled science is simply indisputable and you are treated with uh, ridicule, derision uh, by leftists if you dare to do that. 
Well, today we have joining us on our show someone I think is just going to be a really interesting guest. Uh, he is the author of a book. He's coming out in just a moment, but he's an author of a book, again, called Apocalypse Never, How Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. His name is Michael Schellenberger. And before I wrap up the first five, I want to say this. The same phenomenon is occurring with respect to COVID-19, the coronavirus. Many of you know the name, Dr. Simone Gold. She founded Frontline Doctor. She has been to Washington several times trying to wake America up to the notion that there is not a settled conclusion with respect to coronavirus on subjects like how deathly is it, how much of our public policy should be driven off of the conclusions that have been reached, whether we are making good and right decisions as a country on a public policy and on forcibly shutting down schools and businesses and uh, mandating masks in some places, mandating social distancing. Are we getting the truth or not about the kinds of treatments available that are that we have? If you watch the show very often, you know we've had numerous doctors on the show explaining the marvelous success they have experienced in treating COVID-19 patients with hydroxychloroquine, with inhaled budesonide, other treatments that are working. So Dr. Simone Gold will join us tomorrow live in studio on this show to talk about those issues. But I raise them in, in this first five as I'm wrapping up to say, there is nothing like the uh, volley of, uh, from the left claiming the science is settled, the facts are settled, no one's allowed to talk about it anymore, that ought to make the average American say, I actually want to learn the facts myself. I want to read myself. I want to understand the facts myself. I don't have to salute to the alleged experts on settled climate change, settled COVID policy, or anything else. Here in America, we're actually allowed to think for ourselves. And this is exactly what our guest joining us today has done, Michael Schellenberger, again, the author of this new book. And I, I sent Matt the wonderful a picture. I don't have the book. I have it on my iPad, which deeply troubles me because I can't put my stickies in it. But I, I have it on my iPad. And Matt, I want him to show the book to you before we bring. There it is. Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. That is the book. And we have now joining us Michael Schellenberger, the author of that book. Hello, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Debbie. So glad you could join me today. Well, you heard me. If you heard my first five, I love when I have authors on to have the physical book in front of me and sticky sticking out. And I don't have that. I only have it on my iPad. So I have 17 pages of questions. I'm not even kidding. So we have to talk really fast. But on a serious note, I want to introduce you a little bit more um, and then have you tell us anything about yourself that you want to share. But uh, Michael Schellenberger has worked as an activist in the world of environmental concern, concern about climate change. And um, he has some great experiences he recounts in the book on his journey of getting to the question of what's really true about climate change, not what is labeled acceptable to believe, labeled as settled, but what's really true in a whole host of issues related to climate change. And one other note I meant to say in the first five, I'll say right now, I think this is what the American people, the vast majority of the American people want. They want climate truth. They want COVID truth. They want truth about the issues we are facing. And they want to be told on some issues, we don't know the answer to that yet, but some of us believe this and some believe that. But we have gotten to a crazy place in this country where science is so political, we don't have a discussion about the substance of the issue. Instead, we have a discussion about who can be more insulting to the other side who doesn't believe the same thing they do. So on that note, going back to Michael Schellenberger, he is the author of this book. He's also the founder of a um, new uh, 
I believe it's relatively new, um, a new, uh, he's, he, actually, let me tell you about this. He was Time Magazine Hero of the Environment, the winner of the 2008 Green Book Award from the Stevens Institute of Technology Center for Science Writings, an invited, ex, invited expert reviewer of the next assessment report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. We've talked about them many times on this show. He has written on energy and the environment for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Nature Energy, and other publications, and is the founder and president of Environmental Progress, an independent, nonpartisan research organization based in Berkeley, California. Now I've probably introduced you. So, Mr. Schellenberger, can we bring him back on? Okay, so I wanted to give a little bit about you. So just let me, I have a bunch of questions, obviously, in the substance of your book, but tell us a little bit about, actually, if you would, just tell the story about yourself, what you did as your fundraiser, as your, at a birthday party as a child, because you were really concerned about the environment. You had a birthday party where you charged kids to come. Why don't you tell that story, because it's very fun. Oh, sure. Well, my environmental activism starts when I was 15. I held a, a fundraiser for Rainforest Action Network, and uh, we charged kids, uh, I think, a few bucks to get in, and we served beer. <laughs> that's, my, <laughs> that's my beginning. Um, fundraisers, all, you know, even for teenagers, um, uh, alcohol is the lubricant for fundraisers. So, yeah, I've been an environmental activist for 33 years. I've been a climate activist for 20 years. I decided to write Apocalypse Never after the conversation last year about climate change became so apocalyptic and, and really um, quite uh, terrifying, particularly for children and adolescents. You know that anxiety and depression are increasing for all groups in the United States, but particularly young people, it's a difficult time. Social media is creating a lot of anxiety and stress for kids. I'm the father of a 14-year-old. She's fine because I talked about the science, but her friends don't know if they're going to live long enough to have kids and that's not responsible that's not what the science says uh, i think the science says very clearly that climate change is real um, but it's not the most important environmental problem in the world certainly not the most important problem and that we've uh, in our obsession with it which has been driven by financial political and i think uh, psychological interests and needs that people have We've overlooked many of the more pressing environmental problems, including the continued use of wood fuel by 2 billion people in the world, uh, habitat conservation for wild for wildlife and, and endangered species. And so the book kind of goes through my own journey. It also goes through uh, kind of debunking the big myths that people have been sold by environmentalists, scientists, politicians, journalists, and activists. And I think there's just a much more optimistic story about the environment than people have heard. And, and I wanted to share both that sort of debunking of the myths and also a sort of a better picture of what actually it takes to save the natural environment. And then some kind of an exploration into the question of why, if environmental problems are real, but they're not apocalyptic, do people insist that they pose a threat to life on Earth or to human civilization and that we have to change everything in our society in order to deal with them? That great summary, and honestly, your book, I will encourage our listeners, this is a very readable book. I know a lot of people 
maybe don't want to read things that relate uh, by someone who's deeply diving into climate science because you're afraid it's just too detailed, too technical, or something else where you think, I can't read that stuff. This is very readable. I really encourage you to read it yourself from someone who's, as you just heard, been immersed in as a climate change activist and now writing about the overreaction or the extreme predictions being made. They're actually alarming young people. You know, uh, Michael, I was going to tell you that you're, when you were speaking about how uh, alarmed people get, my husband was um, at some conference and the gentleman who was starting to speak on whatever it was uh, began the story by saying that he had a knock on his door and somebody was just saying, you know, you please sign this petition for climate change. I don't even know what it said, but he said, no, nah, no, thank you. I'm not going to do that. And this like 19 year old at the front door just broke down in tears and just saying, we're all going to die. Why doesn't anybody care? And it really what you just said is it's it's that's evidence of its example of it. There are so many people engaged in the climate activism because they actually think, as AOC promised us, you know, we're all, we only have 12 years to save the planet. And, and they feel just not only frightened, but distraught. Why isn't the rest of the world on board? Why aren't the government, the powers of government on board for massive, massive change? So it was great. Okay, so let me start with, uh, you know, you had, you go through your, your even your chapter titles are very entertaining. Um, you had one, I'm just going to jump to chapter two, called The Earth's lungs are not burning and you took that title i believe i find it in here okay so you took that title i think from a from commentary but actually just why did you name the, the chapter what's this chapter trying to get it's called the earth's lungs are not burning you're quoting the famous uh, climatologist uh, leonardo dicaprio and others go ahead <laughs> well sure so last year 2019 there was a lot of newspaper headlines that the earth's lungs were burning and what people meant was that there were fires um, in the Amazon region, and that uh, supposedly the fires had spiraled out of control, and that climate change played some role with this. And I point out, and in fact, I quote the, one of the most important scientists um, on this issue in the world. He actually was the lead author of the IPCC report on the Amazon, that the Amazon is not the Earth's lungs, nor is it the source of Earth's oxygen which, by the way, are two totally different things because the lungs absorb oxygen and emit carbon dioxide. The Amazon absorbs carbon dioxide and emits some, some O2. But what I point out is that this is some basic science. It's not that hard to understand, but basically the oxygen is used as fuel to decompose plant matter in the Amazon. So heaven forbid you paved over the Amazon entirely it would basically have no impact whatsoever on the oxygen supply of the earth. But that's really just a beginning way to get the reader interested in this very important topic. I think most people would like to see rainforests continue. Most of us would like to see big cats, jaguars, and other really spectacular species have the habitat they need. And really the punchline of that chapter is that the environmental groups, particularly Greenpeace, have actually had a counterproductive impact on the Amazon because what they've encouraged in their sort of ideology of small is beautiful, of small farming, they ended up um, requiring landowners to protect these sort of islands of forest inside of large areas for farming. And so you end up with a fragmented landscape and that's a problem because you want the big cats need to have a contiguous forest landscape to move around. So what they should have done is concentrated the farming in a particular areas. That's how it actually has been most of the world. Um, you concentrate the farming 
And then that allows you to conserve uh, intact rainforest elsewhere. So that's one of the many things that I document environmentalists have done, conservationists and environmentalists have done that have been counterproductive. And it, it all stems from ideology. It all stems from a desire to take control over food and energy production and, and basically oppose the ways, the forms of, of energy and food production that have allowed for the United States to be one of the richest countries in the world and allowed for Europe to develop and what and so really it's been there's been a kind of imperialism of trying to keep countries poor in the name of saving the environment that's a great way to say it. keep them poor in the name in the name of saving the environment as opposed to encouraging uh lesser developed countries and helping them industrialize and grow and or i believe it's what your one message is to organize the people working in the cities who are then going to need to buy food and produce, which can be produced in certain areas. Instead of, it was a great an argument against uh, the cruelty, to me, the cruelty of urging somehow we all benefit if we keep poor countries poor and unindustrialized. It's just denying them the comforts and, and progress of modern civilization. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go yeah, to another one. Right. Yeah, you had another one. Uh, you had um, this. I, I'm going to go through a bunch of things that you debunked, and then we can all, uh, just talk about a bunch from your book. So you had another thing. Uh, you talked about that the, we are not in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, which, of course, is one of the many things the environmental, my term has been the environmental extremists, or you use environmental alarmists, climate alarmists, that we are bringing on because of human behavior on Earth, we're bringing on the sixth mass extinction. Can you explain why that's not true? Sure. So I should start by saying I do think protecting wildlife is important. In fact, I think it's been overlooked and neglected because of too much emphasis on climate change. Nonetheless, there's been so much exaggeration on this question. And so people say that we're causing a sixth mass extinction because there's been five mass extinctions in the past. Well, this is just false. There's I. There's no, it's not even misleading, it's just completely wrong. Um, to cause a mass extinction, you have to be wiping out somewhere between 50 and 75% or more of all species on Earth. Well, that's definitely not happening. Uh, the fact that the species extinction rate is something like 0.001% annually. Um, we're not on track to make it happen. And in fact, because of our success growing more food on less land, We've actually been able to set aside many more areas for, for conservation protection uh, than, than people really had even imagined we could. So the biggest use that we the humans use the earth the most for growing food, particularly meat production, requiring large amounts of pasture. Well, the amount of land that we use for pasture meat production peaked in the year 2000 and has been going down ever since. And that's great news because cattle ranching has been one of the traditional big uh, uses of landscapes. And, and, and I actually point out that you can you can have beef and meat production while still saving large amounts of land, but that requires actually intensifying the industrialization of farming, not moving back to some romantic small farmer <laughs> agriculture. Yeah. And that's just because modern agriculture is just so much more productive and you produce so much more food on less land than we did in the past. You know, I, I love, uh, I really, really enjoyed your book. And one thing I love about it is, as I said earlier, I think that so many people, they, they seem, they get, become aware that there are environmental extremists 
who are basically uh, demanding all sorts of kind of sending us back to the Stone Age um, and making life less comfortable on Earth and refusing to spread the comforts of modern life to poor, poorer nations. And instead of the, so there's environmental extremism, and I think some people perceive that on the other side, there's just kind of a cavalier, uh, you know, we don't worry about the environment, you know, we can do whatever we want, nothing will happen. And what I love that your book, about your book is it's so factual. It is footnoted, and it is based on a lot of your, not just your research, but your travels around the world, your immersion in the environmental movement, the, the climate, um, concern, people concerned about the climate in that movement immersed in knowledge and facts, which is just, it's so refreshing. And I do think this is what most people want. They don't want the extremism of, you know, the climate alarmists, and they don't want the uh, cavalera. They want truth. Another thing you, you talked about was the viability of renewable energy. And this is one of the trendiest things, if you're a, a climate alarmist, to say, well, we could be 100% uh, on solar and wind by whatever year they say. So how realistic is that? Well, it's it's not just that it's not realistic. It's also that it would be very hard on the environment and also for people. So I think most people may know that humans used renewable energy entirely, relied entirely on renewable energy before the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution, which starts in, in England around 1776 with the invention of the Watts steam engine, a very significant year. Um, mm -hmm. But that was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That was the move away from wood to coal, and then over the and then and then later you moved from coal to oil and natural gas in rail in railroads and shipping and, and other methods of transportation. And then each of these steps along the way, we're moving towards fuels that have a higher power density, meaning you can produce more energy on the same amount of land or on much less land. And so to give you a sense of it, to generate the same amount of electricity from a solar farm or a wind farm as from a natural gas plant, you need three to 400 times more land. So it's very land inefficient, which means that you're using more land for, for humans, for energy production. And that means that you're leaving less land for the natural environment. And then the other thing, of course, is that we find everywhere that renewables increase the cost of electricity, both because they require so much more land, but also because they're unreliable. So sunlight, sunlight doesn't always shine for solar panels and, and the wind doesn't always blow. And so you always have to have some backup power source and that just adds incredible amounts to the grid. People don't really understand how the electricity grid works, but you need like you need power all the time. That's how hospitals, that's how civilization runs. And so the high cost of renewables is felt both in the unreliability but also in the large land use impacts, the large environmental impacts. This is one of the strangest things, I think, is that the people that advocate the most strongly for renewables say they're doing it for the natural environment, but renewables are so are really terrible for the natural environment, much worse for the natural environment than fossil fuels. Yeah, you know, someone did a study, and I can't claim remember who it was, was talking about how really you could parallel the kind of lifting up of mankind uh, with the development of fossil fuels and the ability to have trains deliver food to more remote areas, to have, to, we kind of, fossil fuels allowed the world to emerge from, uh, you know, from earlier stages with fewer needs met, people more distance. It allowed everyone to grow, uh, and, and not just in America, but around the world, and especially uh, the poorest nations of all became, had, had more access 
to the good that the developed world had to offer in terms of food, medicines. I, I, I assume you agree with all that. Absolutely, energy liberates us. You know, you can see in my in the background there's I have these World Fair posters that I collect. These beautiful World Fair posters, and what what's so striking about them, and they're usually from you know the 1800s or the early 1900s, is what's so striking about them is they celebrate energy, they celebrate electricity. In fact, Disneyland was a, you know a celebration of of mobility, of energy, of going to space, but also moving across the continent. Certainly, women's liberation. The fact that kids could go to school, uh, the liberation of, of oppressed ethnic minorities—all of these things were made possible by using large amounts of energy, which power the machines, which liberate us from farm life. I mean, people, most people don't want to be farmers, and most people <laughs> want to be able to travel. And so, yeah, modern energy is the key to it all. And so, what, you know, what's driving? Why would somebody want to? make energy more expensive? Why would you want to make energy more scarce? Why would you want to reduce our ability to travel or our ability to use machines? And that's the question I ask in the book because I don't think mere ignorance explains it. I think there's something else much more sinister going on. What's the something else? Well, it's about control. So I think it's interesting that you see a lot of the demand for action on climate. They want the demands are often of international action, of really trying to control the food and energy policies of other countries. You know, Germany is very active in trying to control what Africa does and what its near European neighbors do. Um, food and energy decisions are best made locally. They're best made in the nations that you live in because you know your conditions and and there's just a lot of energy sources, not all of them, but you know, some some nations have more uranium and some have more petroleum and some have more coal or oil or gas and and these are difficult decisions and you have to make them at the local level. And so you see an agenda of trying to control other people's food and energy supplies. That's um, that's not uh, well, it's not coming from a good place. It's not coming from a positive motivation, the desire to to exercise that kind of control over other countries. I could not agree more. You also wrote about one of my favorite subjects, which are plastic straws. And the story you told, I never saw that video you described as a, 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 a environmental ecologist person was uh, trying to help actually rescue, I think it was turtles, turtles, right? And they were extracting something from this turtle's uh, nose, which turned out to be kind of a, a very uh, dilapidated plastic straw. With the point being that she recorded this very unpleasant experience for the poor turtle and then put her video up and it went very viral on YouTube, basically talking about the idea that plastic straws are killing the sea animals. And then we've now had, of course, across this country, outlawing plastic straws. I guess in California, you still can't have them. Here in the great state of Texas, you can have plastic straws if you want. But the larger point you were getting at in that, that whole chapter was the idea about the use of plastics and how harmful they are really uh, as people began to study more to the environment and particularly in the ocean. I know it's a big question, but can you kind of summarize the evolution of your thought on, the, on plastic straws and plastics in general? Sure. So the two most important things I think to know about plastics, the first is that we have a really good solution to plastic waste, which is landfills and incineration. In places where we have a lot, a lot of land, like the United States, we tend to put it in landfills. And that works just fine. The landfills have gotten much better. They're sealed. 
they capture the methane gas. A lot of them burn the gas, which is natural gas, to make electricity. And, and they're stored, if you put your waste in landfills, it does not go into the oceans and does not get stuck in turtles' noses. So that's sort of the first most important thing is that the waste that makes its way to the oceans is often waste from rich countries sent to poor countries, which are supposedly going to recycle it, but because they don't even have waste disposal systems themselves, a lot of it ends up going to the ocean. So you really should be throwing your plastic in the, in the trash and not recycling it. It is okay to recycle aluminum and glass. Those are heavier materials and they have some value, but there is no value to recycling plastic. It's already been downgraded so much that these efforts to recycle plastic, they cost so much that they will just end up uh, sending the waste to poor countries where they go to the ocean. So that's completely counterproductive. The second thing is that uh, plastics, most of our plastics, which are made from fossil fuel uh, byproducts, really waste products, are much better than plastics made from biological materials. So the original plastics were billiard balls, pool balls made from elephant tusks, made from ivory, or piano keys made from ivory. Well, that's terrible for elephants. For the elephants, yeah. Drove the killing of elephants. And actually, it turns out that uh, the plastic piano keys are better than the ivory ones, by the way. That was a funny discovery. But even more dramatically, you know, um, there's something called tortoise shell glasses. In fact, my glasses are tortoise shell. I can see the design yeah. here on there. These are made out of fossil fuels. And you might think, and people are, have been taught, unfortunately, our children have been taught that fossil fuels are bad and that somehow my glasses are bad. But my glasses are good because they replaced the tortoise shell, which was misnamed. It was actually sea turtle shell. Yep. <laughs> One of the famous sea turtles, the Hawksbill uh, sea tortoise, sea turtle, was nearly hunted to extinction so they could make eyeglasses and jewelry. And the way that we saved those turtles was by using plastics made out of fossil fuels rather than plastics made out of, out of animals, out of and then also out of crops. And so bioplastics are bad. Fossil fuel plastics are better. Um, we need them. And in fact, obviously, plastics have a lot of benefits. You know, most of our health care, all the personal protective equipment in our hospitals, these things we take for granted are life-saving things, including in science itself. I mean, they use a huge amount of IV, you know, IV bags and test tubes and all the rest. So, so yeah, the truth is um, we have a really good solution to plastic waste. And to the extent to which we have a plastic waste problem, it's because of poverty in poor countries, and it's because we had this bad idea that we should be recycling plastics in rich countries, and that ended up actually creating the problem in poor ones. You did such a great job explaining that just now and in your book. So much detail, and again, I urge people this book that we're talking about. We're speaking with the author, Michael Schellenberger, the author of Apocalypse Never, How Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. I love the title, as I said earlier. I just love even the title. Okay, so you, I, I love everything we talked about, and we could probably talk about more things, um, but I want to also just kind of get to... Um, there is a, a lot of discussion. You hear conservatives frequently criticizing climate alarmist types who are who fly to um, you know they, they fly on these per their personal jets so you have these you know very mega wealthy uh, mega high um, high stature people in the world 
flying on their private jets to come to some environmental conference to talk about um, you know, saving the, cl the climate and how everybody else has to stop using fossil fuels as they are zipping around the world. And I think a lot of people have commented on that, and you have some great anecdotes and, and data in there about what it costs and all of that. But you also got onto the question of, the, of who's spending more uh, in terms of defending fossil fuels. Is it the environmentalist movement that is the environmental alarmist movement that's spending more money to get their message out to the public? Because usually what you hear is that they, they the, the alarmists, are criticizing how much is being spent by the uh, more conservative and also by the fossil fuel industry. So who's spending more trying to shape the message what America thinks about fossil fuels and the climate um, movement? Sure. On the first part, I point out that last year, Google organized a retreat of very famous celebrities, actors and actresses from around the world to meet in Sicily. I think it was Sicily, an island off the coast of Italy. <laughs> I think it was Sicily um, at a luxury resort. And they all flew by private jet. I mean, it was just obscene. And, you know, jet travel in general is a huge source of carbon emissions by far, really. It's usually our biggest source of carbon. If you fly at all, it's usually your biggest source of carbon emissions. To fly private is just obscene to a global warming conference. And then, you know, many of them, they didn't even want to stay on the resort. They idled off the coast in these huge yachts, which are also just massive gas guzzlers. So the hypocrisy is pretty galling. But I, I think the more serious point, which you're asking about, is that the, the big environmental groups, the big climate alarmist organizations, they get hundreds of millions of dollars a year from various financial and energy interests that, as you point out, massively outspend so-called climate skeptics, massively outspend um, the fossil fuel industry, frankly. Uh, fossil fuel industry just doesn't invest much in climate skepticism anymore. There was a period where Exxon did. didn't last very long, and it wasn't as much money as people think. And I even point out that the, the, that the environmental groups promoting renewables accept a lot of money from natural gas companies, and they use that money to try to kill off nuclear power, which is by, by far our best and largest source of zero emissions energy. And yet, even though the, and the people who say they care the most about climate change are determined to shut down our nuclear plants, and every time they do that, our carbon emissions go up. So if there's a conflict of interest here, it's on the part of climate alarmists and the war that they wage against nuclear power. Could not agree more on that one also. You also make reference to, I think it was, I have the chapters listed. Okay, so it's uh, chapter 12, uh, False Gods for Lost Souls. Yeah, chapter 12, False Gods for Lost Souls. It is so interesting, the young woman I mentioned at the start, uh, who was described in a conference my husband attended, who was just broken down sobbing because someone wouldn't support uh, sign on to whatever she has, some petition about climate change. But the idea that environmentalism as a movement gives people a sense of almost like reason for living, purpose, wh why they're even doing all this, uh, emotional relief, spiritual satisfaction. I, I mean, it is, it was a, it's a very profound recognition. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. This is not an original idea to me. It's an old idea, but the idea is that people need something, they need to believe in a higher power. And as people stop believing in the traditional gods, whether they're the traditional Judeo-Christian God or, or you know, stop being traditional Hindus, 
and, and, and leave behind their more traditional religion, that most people have a hard time really being, really going full atheistic. Even if they say they are, they tend to construct a new gods. And so that's what environmentalism is. It's really the dominant religion of the supposedly secular elite. And so they're prosecuting a religion. They have a new god, it's nature, a new religion, it's, it's environmentalism. They, the key thing about it, though, is they don't think of themselves as adherents to a religion. They think that they are just scientists. Science. <laughs> yeah, I think they're scientists. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. And so there's a there's a natural desire for all of us to feel like our lives matter. I think it's very important that we think our lives matter. It's why we get out of bed in the morning. In fact, you find that people that are depressed are people that don't think their lives matter. They're people that feel like their lives have no point. And so it is important to have meaning in your life. But I think that in the case of climate activists, they've tried to gain that meaning by both distorting the science and also by putting people down and, and lying to people really about, about both themselves and the world, basically constructing themselves as the superheroes, I'm gonna save the world from climate change. It's just not, uh, I don't think it's particularly healthy. And what I point to is in particular, again, coming back to what we started, a lot of efforts by these so-called climate heroes to really terrify young people and give them anxiety. You mentioned earlier a case, I just got a message over Twitter two days ago from somebody who said their niece had killed herself. Oh. And she said that the reason was climate change. I actually, oh it's, a, it's, a, it's something I haven't written about, but I had, a, there's actually several suicides um, that have occurred because of people saying that there was because of their depression over climate change. I didn't write about it in the book because it was, it's tricky because I think sometimes, well, I point, I do point this out. I think sometimes the climate apocalypse conversation is depressing. It is depressing, but I also think depressed people are attracted to that apocalyptic story. You know, it's a kind of really negative story. It's a story where you kind of say, you know, the world is just a terrible place and people are evil and greedy and the whole thing is coming to an end. It's wrong. It's one-sided. Um, there's certainly problems in the world, but the kind of negativism and the apocalyptic rhetoric uh, really is a kind of depressed person's way of, of seeing the world. It's really one-sided. It's just too dark. It's too negative. It's unhealthy psychologically. Absolutely. Michael Schellenberger, as I said, I have 17 pages of notes from your book, but I can't get to them all. I want to thank you for writing this book again. It's called Apocalypse Never, How Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. We're speaking with the author, Michael Schellenberger. You can go to his new website and actually, can you say, it's environmental, pro tell us what it is, please. Sure. It's environmentalprogress.org. Okay, great uh, to go to that website, learn more, read this book. Actually, it fills you with facts for those of you who are activists to share with your friends because I think that there's an argument that sometimes people on the right fall into which just dismisses all environmental concern and that is not appealing to many people. They want to hear answers and substance and reason and facts and that's what this book is full of. So, Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Okay, folks, I want to tell you two other quick things today. Um, one, I, I call this one the Dems Truth and Reconciliation Commission Coming to America. 
I don't know if you know this, but throughout history, some countries have had something when they've gone through a really bad period, like apartheid in South Africa um, and other extreme situations where they try to, when they finally rid themselves, rid their country of something bad, like apartheid, they, they want to have a commission. They want to come together and kind of say, okay, everybody's got to acknowledge what was true, what we did was wrong, what is false. It's not exactly like a, a um, retraining center, you know, where they might send people off. Communist, uh, you know, extreme leftist leaders have done this, send people off to retraining camps so they stop believing in uh, the beauty of freedom or uh, free markets or something. They're sent off to become indoctrinated into um, the, the communist or left-wing mindset. But this idea, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which sounds completely absurd, for America's circumstance, hasn't actually been successful in other countries either if you measure success by the idea of whether or not the country, because they went through that process, they came together, they all understood each other, they all loved each other again. I don't think it's been successful historically, but there was a suggestion by Robert Reich, R-E-I-C-H, and every time you think you lose track of, isn't he gone, isn't he a long time absent from the scene guy, he's actually very active on the American left. He's, uh, he's putting out statements periodically. He's very, very, you know, he's, he's a radical leftist. He's very anti-Trump. And he has floated the idea that America needs to have this. That when we're finally done with this, says he, which people assume he means the Trump administration, that we really have to have something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They've got to come forward and, and really square ourselves up again, uh, learn our facts again, remember who we are. Um, I mean, there, there, uh, there's a lot of history in the article I posted about this. So on our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under show, drop-down list of links, you can read about this. I am not saying this is an idea that uh, Biden has embraced or that Kamala Harris has embraced yet. I'm saying that someone of the stature on the American left of Robert Reich, who is a radical leftist, is two things I'm saying. One is he and one other person kind of made allusion to it. I can't remember who it was, some other leftist. But the idea that the Trump era has been so traumatic that somehow after we're post-Trump, we're going to have to come together and all remember who we are as Americans. And we're going to have to have a truth and reconciliation effort of some kind to throw out all the ugliness that has overtaken America. I mean, it is complete hogwash. It is a complete hogwash idea as applied to America. Absurd and ridiculous. But the reason I mention is this kind of guy, he thinks he's a thought leader. And on the left, people think he's a really smart guy. But this, so it's a, it's a kind of just a red flag warning. But secondly, it is this tells you the degree to which Reich and the leftists have bought into their own absurd narratives, their lies about America, their lies about Trump, their lies about America of the 1619 Project, the lies the left has painted about America during the Trump tenure, or Trump presidency, where they talk about Black Lives Matter had to, had to be formed because look at all these terrible things happen. America is a terrible country. All of the lies the left, the left perpetrates about America would be the kind of things as Truth and Reconciliation Commission would want to talk about. Can we all agree, you know, America is a terrible place. We must renounce our sins. We must have reparations. We must denounce every single thing that's ever happened in American history and denounce the American culture and society as racist. 
This is how much the left has drunk their own Kool-Aid and how much they hate America. That's what this would represent. It may go nowhere, but I thought it was worth a brief mention. And last and very quick story, because we're almost out of time, and it's Happy Tuesday, um, is that the Department of Justice has finally sued Google. And that's good. It's a good thing. We're not much to report except they filed the lawsuit, except to say that it's about, you know, at least four years too late, maybe like eight, 12. I don't know how many years too late to say that it is. But it's a good thing, finally, legal action coming out of the Department of Justice and going after Google. And the argument of it is it's an antitrust suit. And so they are talking about, because Google is, you know, essentially the gatekeeper to the internet, how pretty much if you try to, if people say, you know, hey, uh, what about such and such restaurant? What do you guys know about it? Everyone says, I don't never heard of it. I'll Google it. We actually use the, the, the uh, noun, the name of the organization, as the verb. I'll Google it. There are plenty of other great search engines, but Google owns the search engine to the internet. I mean, it, virtually everyone goes there. The stats are in this article. I mean, overwhelmingly, people use Google. And the basic argument of, the, of this lawsuit, filed, by the way, Republican attorney generals of Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, South Carolina, and the great state of Texas, have signed on to this, and it's basically challenging Google in federal court uh, as basically constituting a monopoly, and therefore urging the DOJ uh, is going to urge that it be considered a monopoly, and then there, once it gets, if that is, fact is established in this litigation, that Google meets the standard for monopoly, then the government has various remedies, obviously the biggest one being breaking it up. It couldn't come soon enough, couldn't come fast enough. There needs to be a removal of any protections of liability against Google and all the other online players. There needs to be a, a, a determination by the American people, by our government, that we're not going to have our entire First Amendment protection, freedom to learn things, freedom to read, freedom to, to get access to information, cannot be controlled by a left-wing organization that pretty much dedicates its efforts politically to shut down conservatives, to even shut down the president of the United States, to shut down conservatives as they try to have participate in the American political conversation. I don't know if DOJ can possibly fast track this litigation or if the courts will allow that, but it cannot come soon enough that Google gets broken up. I know people have been saying, well, you know, we could probably just have an alternative to Google. We don't have to go this route. And yes, in the perfect world, utopian world, uh, there be some, and there are alternatives out there for Twitter and Google and Facebook, for all of them, for YouTube. There are alternatives out there, and they're working to get started. And I urge you to learn about them and to subscribe to all of them. But this is a step. This is a message from the Department of Justice. They're not going to let Google continue to hold the monopoly on access for the American people to the information they seek. It's a great thing, long time coming, and I hope it can be fast-tracked and be very successful. At the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show today talking about science is settled, says Senator Kamala Harris to Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And I play that little clip for you. Kamala Harris voices leftist dogma. Climate change is real, is caused by man, and therefore all of man's activities must be controlled by the central government under the Green New Deal. Something we'll talk about more before the election day, the Green New Deal. Remind you how bad life will be. Harris tried to bait 
Amy Coney Barrett with Just Like COVID's Contagious, Just Like Cigarettes Cause Cancer, and Climate Change Dogma of the Left all are settled. And I meant to say when I played that clip, Amy Coney Barrett is brilliant, and she was brilliant in that answer. She wasn't coy and ducking. She was just out there basically pointing out, you know, I know I don't know where you could be going with this because you asked two things that are real, COVID contagious and cigarettes cause cancer, and now you're off on something else. And I thought Barrett handled it brilliantly. She's handled the whole hearing brilliantly. brilliantly. The reality is climate is always changing. It's been hotter and colder, drier and wetter in varying cycles over the millennia. The effect of modern human activity on the climate is not understood with precision or predictability. There is no man-made climate thermostat we can adjust. Climate alarmism for the purpose of forwarding a leftist totalitarian takeover, which is exactly what the Green New Deal is, is not science. Next one, Dems Truth and Reconciliation Commission coming to the USA. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions arose in South Africa and Rwanda, responses to the end of apartheid and tribal genocide, based on a sense of clear wrong and clear right. That the American left categorizes Trump and Trump supporters as indefensible reprobates who need to be brought before a commission to confess their wrong thoughts and behavior ought to frighten and trouble every American with a conscience. President Trump stands for love of America as founded with we the people self-governing under God. Not amoral, secular, ruling class, deep state elites, and bureaucrats controlling the masses. Dems are exposed as never before as radical anti, excuse me, as radical America-hating leftists. And the DOJ sues Google, yay. Google's control of the internet search far exceeds the monopoly power of petroleum companies, which is the original impetus for the American antitrust law. The control of internet search is, at, is the control of knowledge and information. It is ultimately the control of thought, the most dangerous and consequential form of control that there is. Google has demonstrated willingness and intent to exercise thought control in the manner they define as correct. The DOJ is right to sue Google. A breakup of internet search monopoly is the minimum remedy needed. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you